The topic of artificial intelligence has become a critical one lately. There is a ton of chatter about AI right now. It's become one of the most pressing issues of our time. And unfortunately, in the midst of all this noise, I think the most important and profound question about AI is getting very little attention. And that question is this, is it possible for AI to become truly intelligent? This is the question that we are asking today on Think for Christ. Now, it's not as if this uh, question isn't being asked at all. I just don't think it's being asked seriously enough. And it's not being asked to the right people. Popular culture is looking to technology moguls, computer engineers, cognitive scientists for the answer. But I submit that the question of whether an AI can ever become truly intelligent is not one that can be answered by scientists because it's not a scientific question. Before we can ever know whether AI is or can be intelligent like a human being, we first have to know the nature of human intelligence. But of course, to ask about the nature of intelligence is to ask a philosophical question, not a scientific one. Which is why I've invited a philosopher to join me today who also happens to be one of my former professors. He's here to help us think through this critical and uh, philosophical question. Dr. J.T. Bridges, welcome to Think for Christ. Uh, thanks, Dr. Alberino. <laughs> thanks so much for uh, joining me today. Hey, by the way, how's it feel to be the very first guest on Think for Christ? Oh, great. Yeah. That's I've something, at, huh? Yeah, I've looked at some of your content. I, I really like uh, I, I like your setup. It, you know, it looks good, sounds good, good content. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, why don't you just take a minute or two just to introduce yourself to the Think for Christ uh, community here? Okay. Uh, Dr. J.C. Bridges. Um, professor uh, of philosophy at Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. I teach a variety of philosophy classes, um, mostly metaphysics, uh, epistemology, philosophy of science, uh, ethics, politics, and aesthetics, you know, all the value theory things. Um, but um, yeah, teach uh, uh, teach Aristotelian symbolic logic. So, you know, those sorts of things have been a full-time professor for a little over a decade, 12, 12 years, I think now. Um, finished my doctorate in the epistemology of the sciences it was kind of my focus of my doctoral research, but, you know, philosophy, religion, um, Thomism, right. So we'll, we'll bring up St. Thomas Aquinas because, uh, you know, we think he's right and uh, we'll explain his correct <laughs> views to everybody, hopefully. Um, yeah. So, so the, uh, the interaction between, you know, theories of cognition, uh, epistemology, the sciences, uh, that's been kind of my bailiwick for, for about a, about a decade now. So, so with the, uh, the emergence of the question of, um, in, uh, uh, artificial intelligence, it really does, as you said in the introduction, uh, it really does point us back to, well, uh, what is the artificial modifying, right? Uh, because we're talking about what is natural intelligence such that we can use it as a gauge of whether or not we have produced something sufficiently called artificial intelligence. So yeah, yeah. there are, I think there are, are, you know, technological sides of things. I'm, I'm not a computer programmer or a computer scientist or architect or some, you know, people like that, not a mathematician. You know, a lot of this stuff is, is built off of uh, pretty heady math. Sure. Um, 
but but the way you frame the question is what is what is the nature of intelligence not not like because somebody like a somebody like a psychologist like you could have jordan peterson on here and ask him about intelligence and he would point you to probably psychological studies or or studies measuring uh, id not id um uh, iq mm-hmm. right uh so and he would he would talk to you about you know demographics of men and women ethnicities and and uh you know, historical epochs where IQ has uh, ebbed and flowed or waxed and waned and, you know, things like that. But uh, just so the audience is, is aware, this is not the kind of conversation that we're intending to have today. That's right. No. Uh, we're intending to have a philosophical conversation yeah. of what does it mean for a, um, for a, an embodied soul to know. Right? That's right. Yeah. So, so we, we will be bracketing some of the more technical aspects of the conversation <clears throat> that you would, you know, you would have with a, a computer scientists say, mm-hmm. or even like a neuroscientist. So we'll, right. we'll, we'll be stricking, uh, sticking strictly to the philosophical questions. So JT, I don't have any um, official polling on this, but it seems to me that there is widespread belief in our culture today that a sufficiently advanced or sophisticated machine or computer um, could one day become sentient or conscious mm-hmm. or intelligent. And I think this is a belief that uh, it's not only held by the general public, or it's not just a belief that's kind of floating around in popular culture, but even many scientists today and philosophers hold it as well. Now, again, as it seems to me, in order to consistently entertain a belief like this, we have to entertain certain other beliefs about what we've been talking about, the nature of human intelligence. So what do you think about that? Um, what are some of the philosophical assumptions about human intelligence that are required for uh, the belief that a machine or a computer or a program or a robot could become intelligent. Yeah. Um, I think the, I think the place to start is uh, th- there's an article from, I think 2015 by a guy named uh, Robert Epstein, who's a, who's a uh, psychologist, but he, he wrote an article called the empty brain where he talks about how over the last, you know, 40 or 50 or 60 years or so uh, since, uh, since computer, uh, computers and computer modeling have, have, uh, you know, uh, increased and he calls it the, um, information processing view of human cognition. Right. And so, uh, he, he, he references this book, uh, by George, uh, Zarkadakis, which is, uh, who's a, has his PhD in AI. Um, but he references that book and I, I, I got it later, but, um, he talks about how, Throughout the throughout the history uh, throughout human history, um, there's been this um, compulsion to take the most sophisticated machinery of the time and use that as an analogy for understanding human nature. Hmm. So, for example, in Descartes' time, you know, say roughly, uh, you know, uh, early 17th century, something like that, uh, 1600s, the the most intricate. Uh, machinery was you know the 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 pulley system and then the gears mm-hmm. uh, you know and so people would say well well a human a human being is just in a, a complex series of humors and and pulleys and and springs and gears right so with the advent of uh, of computation we now had something that was a ready-made an analog to something like the human mind right right um so he calls it the information processing analogy to human cognition. He says it's wrong coming from a psychological perspective. He said, you know, you don't have files in your mind. You don't have memory files or picture JPEGs and, 
you know, things like that. He says human cognition is is uh, is not uh, information processing in its uh, in its nature. And then um, I, I heard this, you know, w- when I was being introduced to Elon Musk and, and some of his views of of technology and his and and the future and things like that. I heard Elon Elon Musk mention that you know it's highly likely that we live in a computer simulation. <laughs> and so I, I tracked down, I tracked down, I think it's a 2003 article that uh, uh, I think at Oxford published 2003 article, I can't remember the name of the author, who originally wrote this um, argument about that, you know, odds are that we're living in a, uh, it's highly likely that we're living in a computer simulation. And in the, in the abstract, in the opening pages of that article, that author basically commits himself to the idea that, um, if human knowing or human cognition just is something like computational processing mm-hmm. and um, what is it? Moore's law, this, that technology is increasing, you know, doubling every say 18, 24 months like that. Mm-hmm. He, he says, if you work that, if you work that timeline out, then, you know, in a thousand years, our computing ability is going to be billions of times uh, faster, more sophisticated. And so, um, so it is, it is likely that, that what we're experiencing, and, oh, and he says, um, in that original article, he says, then what will, what will advanced civilization civilizations do? Well, they'll start running simulations on evolution and processes and, and, tr- and trying to predict models for the future. And the more they do this, the more sophisticated their, their simulations become, the more and more the the um, the um, entities within those simulations will be less and less aware that they're part of a simulation. Hmm. But all of that, all of that reduces back to an assumption that what human knowing is is an is a kind of computational information processing, right? Uh, you know, uh, experience, and so and so both this sort of Elon Musk. Uh, assumption that you know it's highly likely that we're living in a computer simulation, and and this question about AI really does go back to what Epstein calls an information processing view of human cognition, and that being the linchpin. If that is a mistake, it um, and, it, and I, I think it is a mistake, then both of those pathways of reasoning about how we interact with our environment and then what the nature of AI are it is. Uh, both of those things just fall flat. That's so right. I, I think we're really getting at something that is that is a uh, uh, a, a crucial assumption for this sort of uh, this sort of reasoning. And yeah. I and I go ahead. I was just going to say, um, it sounds like the view that you were espousing there. It sounds like um, that would end in just radical skepticism. I mean, I feel like you would yeah. just be in epistemological darkness if, if his argument holds water. Yeah. And, um, I I've seen this move made in other contexts. So for example, there was a, there was a television show, I think it was called brain games. Right. And, and I, I watched a couple episodes, uh, this years ago and, you know, they, they put, uh, what was it? One of them was they, they had a person stand about 10 feet away from a big, you know, uh, 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 not a cardboard, but a big uh, visual aid. And the visual aid had one trapezoid that was gray on the top and another trapezoid that was gray on the bottom. And they stood back at a certain distance and they said, 
which one is darker gray? And they said, well, the one on the bottom is darker. And come to find out they're exactly the same shade of gray, but at a at a certain angle, at a certain distance, with a certain lighting, the, the grays look distinguishable, even though they're they're identical. Right. And so the um the common theme of these episodes of brain games is that is they would take some aspect of sense perception and show how um our initial prima facie interaction with that sense perception was wrong and so we basically we can't trust our sense perception and what i teach my students <laughs> about this sort of move is is this how do they know that those grays are quote unquote actually identical grays that's right and the answer is more sense perception mm -hmm. The only way that we have any information outside of our minds is through our senses. And the only way that we can call into question or, or uh, correct uh, misperception is through more perception. But to call into question that, as you said, this sort of this global skepticism that this, uh, that my senses can't, uh, that my senses could potentially always be lying to me. Well, how would you ever know? Right. Right. Back to our sort of Cartesian. That's right. Question, but yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So um, the view sounds to me something very similar, like the computational theory of mind in the mm -hmm. philosophy of mind. I mean, it sounds yeah. like that's kind of what like what he's espousing that basically the mind is like a program or software that's being run on the hardware of the brain. Yeah. Um, very, very, very popular view today. Um, mm -hmm. And that itself, I think, is is kind of a subset of a larger view in the philosophy of mind called functionalism. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that functionalism itself is a subset of a of this larger project in the philosophy of mind to reduce all of the mental to the physical. Right. right. So you, so you've been talking here, taking the angle um, of epistemology. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, it seems like um, speaking from maybe more of a, like a position of ontology, it just seems like a lot of these theories that we're getting today are coming to us uh, as one or another form of physical reductionism, mm -hmm. right? Where we're trying to reduce the mental to the physical, uh, that the only thing that exists are physical things, the mind is part of the physical world, and therefore the mind is in some sense like a biological machine. And if you if you begin with this perspective, if this is your ontology, right? If this is your metaphysics, then then it doesn't seem like it's it's a it's a very big step to go from that view of the mental to the idea. Well, if the mind is just a, a biological machine, then it should be possible, right? Maybe not feasible right now, but it should be possible at some point when our technology is sufficiently sophisticated and advanced. It should be possible to be able to um, reverse engineer what's happening in these biological machines, right? And and mm -hmm. reproduce it in something else, in in something made of silicon, for example, right. or a robot right. or a computer. How much do you think that um, the project of physical reductionism is playing into these really popular computational theories of the mind? Yeah, yeah, uh, very much so. So I, I guess there's there's a few things. Um, yeah, there's a. I guess I'm I'm I've got a couple competing ideas here. Um, first of all, yes, there's the sort of these uh, epiphenomenalism. This mm -hmm. that you know 
uh, if we just have a complex, uh, a complex enough underlying uh, physical system, what emerges from that is this epiphenomenon that is um, causally that is, a feat, right? Yeah, it's a, it's it's a it's a sum that's greater than the parts type type thing. Um, but there's also there's also a um, uh, there's a there's a couple books going back to 2011. There's one in 2017, and then 2021. Uh, some of them printed at uh, either Harvard or, or MIT Press, and there the pendulum there is swinging back the other way. Um, there was a there's a book in 2011. Uh, I can't remember the author, but it's called uh, uh, Radical Embodied Cognitive Science. Mm-hmm. So they're they're trying to swing back the other way and just um, and just very much reduce anything computational to uh, just functional interactions. That's right. Neurons. Um, but yeah, all of this, all of this very much assumes a, um, hmm. yeah. Um, I, I've been an Aristotelian tome so long. It's hard for me to put my feet in the, uh, in the shoes of a, well, someone who's wrong, uh, <laughs> uh, kidding, but not kidding. Um, yeah, so I, I think uh, so. We we talked earlier about uh, you know when we talk about intelligence, we're talking about the the knowing powers of an embodied soul, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But but even even uh, uh, taking a, a step further back from that is is having a philosophy of nature of form matter composition, right? Right. So um, uh, part of this reductionist uh, move really tries to eliminate um, form from matter. That's right. And it, it mm-hmm. tries to reduce things to a, a material substrate that it that is uninformed. And that and that itself is is I think not possible. So so yes, there's a problem, there's a problem with this reductionism in the in the philosophy of mind. But the philosophy of mind itself is situated within a a view of human nature, which is itself situated within a philosophy of nature. Like what what are concrete particulars, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you would have to be something like, I would say probably a bundle theorist would be the the best fit for a reductive materialist view of of mine, right? So so what is uh, what is cognition? It's information processing. Uh, the embodiment of it is just its circuitry and whatever uh, you know, uh, you know, say say data, the positronic brain or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, uh, I lost my train of thought. Well, yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, because we're Aristotelians, we're going to say the problem isn't anything that's happening in the 21st century. Ultimately, it goes back to where you began with Descartes mm-hmm. and the shift from the classical view of nature and matter specifically to that mechanistic view of yeah. matter, where matter is just inert, you know, it's it it has no qualities except those which can be defined mathematically and any kind of um intelligibility that it has any kind of finality mm-hmm. has to be imposed on it from the outside and there's no intrinsic te- teleology right yeah, there's no right. directedness so 
I think so many of those in the philosophy of mind today, in neuroscience and what have you, they're working from this mechanistic view of matter, which just denudes the material world of, of uh, all of those qualities that the classical guys pointed out. And, uh, you know, they said that matter has to have given, given our experience of reality. So I agree with you. It, it's hard when you, when you're, especially when you're thinking from that classical model, it's hard to put yourself and situate yourself in the position of so much of the philosophy of mind today, because mm -hmm. so much of it does kind of launch from that mechanistic view of yeah. matter, which just gets it wrong from the get go. But yeah, it, it, go ahead. No. And, and, and you know, for, for the benefit of your audience, you know, uh, I, I'm sure the, the lingering question is, well, well, what's left out? You know, if, if you were a scientist and you were a cognitive scientist, you go, well, why can't I just reduce human cognition or human thinking or knowing to an advanced neural net and then, and then make the assumption or infer from that, that I can reproduce something like a neural net in, in something artificial. And then I would have effectively reproduced something that is akin to human knowing. And, and the, the reductive materialist, what it leaves out are, uh, you know, um, uh, Hillary Putnam and, and Fazer do a really good job of explaining the nature of both thought experiments and uh, the nature of identity. Uh, mm -hmm. Hillary Putnam, uh, uh, you know, two things are identical when they have all their properties in common, right? So Putnam gives the example of H2O and water. Mm -hmm. People have known, I mean, prehistoric people knew what water was. But it's only relatively recently that we understand that water's molecular structure is uh, H2O, right? Because we know that H2O and water are identical, right? This substance that we call water is molecularly H2O. Because they're identical, there is no property that water has that H2O doesn't have. Or right. else there would be some level of non-identity between the two. But mm -hmm. they're they're exactly identical, which means they have all their properties in common. And something and if one of those things on the uh, if one thing on one side of the equation has a property that the other one doesn't have, then by definition they're not identical. Right. So if if, if human cognition is reducible to matter, energy, and motion, right? This is the materialism. Then everything about the brain, everything about material systems should, uh, uh, brain and mind should be identical. Everything that we say about the brain should Have be, all the same properties. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. So the question is, well, are there, uh, are there properties that the mind has the brain not only doesn't have, but can't have? And there are there are at least two properties that are sort of my go-to properties that that I think about. One is intentionality, mm -hmm. and the other is abstraction, right? And intentionality is the more more fundamental one, and and that is uh, intentionality is the property of being about something else, right? So intentionality thoughts, you know, uh, uh, what are you doing? I'm thinking. What's the follow? What are you thinking about? Thoughts have intentionality. Words have intentionality, you know, uh, you know, uh, there's a, there's a whole, uh, subdomain of linguistics called semiotics mm -hmm. and semiotics, you know, rides this threshold between, uh, the nature of language and how language functions as a sign, right? Semiotics is a, is a study of, of words as signs or, or, or study of signs. And, and a sign is something that is about something else. Like when you pull up to a stop sign, a stop sign is a thing of itself. It's a octagonal, right? It has its own material nature, right? Yeah. Exactly, but it's also about something. It's a command. Right. It, 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 
it holds an imperative for us, right? Mm-hmm. Even if it had, the, even if the word stop was painted over, you pull up to a red octagonal sign, you would stop your car, right? Because it's about something else. Well, uh, thoughts, memories, all of these, a, a lot of this mental phenomenon has this property of intentionality. But um, material objects don't have that. Just, just material systems don't have that. If I said I found a, um, I pinpointed a neuron in the brain, right? The follow-up is not, well, what's that neuron? What's about? it about? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, that doesn't make any sense. Right. You know? It's like um, uh, the pH of my bloodstream is, is, a, is you know, is a little bit basic. I'm, 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 it's up to 7.2. You go, well, what's the pH in your bloodstream about? Chemical systems and neurochemical systems, they don't have, um, they don't have the property of intentionality. But mental phenomenon do. They have right. the property of, of intentionality. And, and so there's at least one um, one glaring uh, uh, non-identical property between the physical brain and uh, what we experience as mental phenomena. And the other is, is abstraction. You know, abstraction for, you know, we, we know that abstraction is, uh, uh, here's an obtuse triangle, here's an acute triangle, here's an equilateral triangle, and they're all triangles. Well, how do I go beyond the individual instances of triangles and have a concept of triangularity? Because the concept of triang- triangularity, uh, you know, this geometric form with three sides, three internal angles, um, it prescinds from every instance of triangle. That's right. right? So, so, and I, yeah, anyway, so. So it, it ranges over all triangles. That's right. It's a, it's a one over the many and nothing material Everything material is is an individual, right? Yeah. Um, it's a particular. You can't have a material thing that is a one that ranges over a many. Only the only thing that can kind of fit that is a concept, That's right? right? Just like you're saying, you have that abstract universal concept of triangle, for example, right. that can't be identified with any specific triangle um, that we could instantiate in the material world. It ra- it ranges over all possible instantiations of particular right. triangles and there's nothing material that has that property and like you yeah. said if there's a property that is had by a concept that is not had by a material thing then that alone crushes the idea that the two are identical that's right right there is this property that they do not share therefore they are not identical that's right so so intentionality and universality the idea that concepts have an aboutness and that they're and that they're universal in their scope I mean, it's why we it's why we have the discussion about the difference between abstract and concrete abstract objects and concrete particulars, because right. there is a glaringly not glaring non identity between that which is abstract and that which is concrete. And if, if I mean, if anything else, the the materialist reductionist is trying to draw something uh, uh, about human thinking that is that is itself concrete. Right. So right. yeah, I, I think that's and, enough and- to yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, and there's another problem too that's often brought up in in the literature, and it's it goes broadly as the problem of consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. Or what David Chalmers has called the hard problem of consciousness. And it seems like there's a problem for the materialist um, in that there seems to be an unbridgeable logical and metaphysical gap between facts about brain chemistry, mm-hmm. like the wiring of neurons and the like, on the one hand, and then facts about conscious experience on the other. So one thing that's often pointed out is that consciousness is very different than um, what we, the kind of descriptions that we get from science. 
the conscious experience is subjective. It's private. It's mind dependent. It's, it's a first person point of view. None of this is captured by the physics, chemistry, biology of the brain. You know, you can do all the possible study, um, even, even considering the fact that our science is going to advance 100 years from now, let's say, you can study all of the physical interactions, all the stuff of the brain, the network, all the physical interactions that's going on with neurons and, and neural pathways and, and networks and what have you, but you'll never ever get to something that resembles consciousness. Like you could, you could do, do a full study on, on how it is that we see the color red, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of electromagnetism and how light works and how the signals from um, photons go from the thing to our eye and then it gets you know uh, processed by the brain but none of that will ever tell you what it feels like to see red right the the what it's likeness of experience red and and in the in the philosophy of mind this is called qualia qualia right right. so there's something that it, it feels like there's some experience to see what it, what red looks like, or to taste salt, or to experience yeah. anger. There the, are these subjective first-person facts about qualia that just seem to be non-physical facts. Here's another um, example of um, um, a non-identity conferring property, right, Bet- yeah. between the, the mental and the physical, that uh, we have qualia. There seems to That's be right. facts that are additional to all the scientific facts about the material world so but if the brain's made up of the same stuff as the rest of the physical world um purposeless odorless colorless tasteless particles then how do you account for the rich experience of consciousness so this is this is another another thing that's brought up that is still um, an unanswered question there's still just as much mystery today as there ever has been about this question in the philosophy of mind in neuroscience we're no no closer to answering this problem of of qualia than than we were you know 30 30 years ago so this is just another example another problem that's yeah. often often put beside the problem of intentionality the problem of rationality yeah so george zarkadakis at the very end of his uh of his book uh, in our own image uh he says um a computer that behaves intelligently will be considered intelligent even if it's a philosophical zombie that's right right so uh you know zombies in the literature are um uh, are creatures that have um that have you know they have all the behavior of a of a sentient human being and yet they have zero qualia right right, right? so it just it just points to this fact that, out that uh that ai whatever it can do it can't um it, it can't experience uh right so yeah uh, right and the fact to- that in the fact that we can conceive of a zombie right that has molecule mm. from molecule identity with right. let's let's say they make a zombie of me right mm-hmm. molecule by molecule i am reproduced in another anthony alberino standing in front of me the fact that i can conceive of this thing this zombie as having every physical particle that i have but yet lacking qualia lacking and, and, and every every aspect of your behavior it could that's mimic right. every aspect of that's what right. you're doing right now and yet have nothing going on that's exactly right. In terms of first-person awareness, yeah. Yeah, and what these thought experiments do is, again, it just it just breaks the identity thesis, right? It just mm-hmm. shows that if I can conceive of such a situation, 
then obviously there's properties that I have that a zombie wouldn't have, but a zombie is supposed to be a molecule for molecule exact replication of myself. And therefore we have another case of non-identity. Right. Yeah. And, and going back to the water example, you you couldn't, you talk about conceivability and, and then there's inconceivability. I cannot conceive of a property that water would have that H2O doesn't. Right. Which is one of the things that, uh, that grounds our understanding that the, of identity. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And then there's that famous knowledge argument. This is put forward by uh, Frank Jackson, or sometimes it's called the Mary Mary's room argument. Yeah. That is the same Mary thing. A neuroscientist. It, that's right. You have a neuroscientist mm-hmm. who's locked in a room and, and somehow it's set up where she never sees color ever. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something on her eyes that prevents her from seeing color or however the, however it works out. But anyway, she's a neuroscience. She does all the science. She figures out, you know, the nature of light and, and she could tell you all the physical facts involved in color, right? Yeah. She could, she could give you an accurate scientific representation of what color is, but she's never experienced color. And then the thought experiment says, well, let's take her out of that room, bring her, out, bring her outside. For the first time, she sees the color red mm-hmm. and she has this experience of seeing red. And this experience of seeing red, according to the argument, is going to be a fact over and above all of the physical facts that she already knew as a neuroscience about you know, what it means uh, to see something red. And mm-hmm. once again, we have an identity breaker. So there's lots of arguments like that. And if JT, if I could just kind of back up a little bit. Sure. Um, so I said, so much of, of the conversation today is based on this ontological reductionism of mental mm-hmm. states, the mental, the mind to material, something material. And because of arguments like the ones we've been talking about, there's been a gradual retreat, right? I mean, it started, um, I don't know, 50, 60 years ago, the going theory was um, reducing the mind to behavior behaviorism. Mm-hmm. Well, that was thrown out. It was, it was untenable. Then it was popular to try to reduce the mind um, to a brain, right? Or brain states. Do you have Here you have token or type identity theories. Yeah. Well, that was seen as untenable because of, you know, multiple realizability and other, and other arguments put forth, put forth by Hillary Putnam. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems like where we've landed now, and of course there, there's, there are those who just want to eliminate the mind altogether. Just say, there, well, there is no such thing as mind. And those are uh, eliminativists. Right. Um, they're they're on the extreme wing, but it seems yeah, like where the, we've landed. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Oddly, yeah. Uh, ironically enough. Yeah. What an ironic uh, name there. So, um, where it seems like where we've where, where we've landed in terms of physical theories about the mind is the mind today. It's popular seen as being reduced to some kind of a functional system, right? Mm-hmm. So we've landed on functionalism. So is there anything we can, we can say about functionalism here? Because I think the reason it's important to bring up functionalism is because there's a direct link between functionalism and that computa- computational theory of mind that, that you uh, were talking about at the beginning. Yeah. Um, I haven't looked at philosophy of mind uh, specifically for, for a few years, but I, I will say this. So I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not boned up on, on functionalism per se. But but I would say this. Um, one of the one of the problems is, um, you know, when I used to teach uh, undergrad, I used to teach uh, walk people through Dar- uh, Dar- um I was talking about Darwinism yesterday. So Descartes' uh, <laughs> substance dualism, and um, one of the things I did to you know shock or at least intrigue the the undergrads 
is I would say the problem is that minds don't exist. Right. I'll just let them ponder that for a second. And it's true. Uh, mind, just the notion of mind is a, is a reification, right? That's right. What exists are human knowers because what Aquinas will say. And so uh, I was having a discussion a few weeks ago with somebody about this, the, the nature of self-awareness and consciousness in the context of AI. And so the problem is this self-awareness or self-consciousness or sentience. Um, sentience is a phenomenological turning of the mind back on itself when the mind is aware of itself as a knowing power, right? So we've reduced, uh, we've reduced talk of human to talk of the human mind, to talk of consciousness or what is the nature of consciousness. And all, all this becomes very mysterious and it, it becomes mysterious because of these, <laughs> of these category mistakes, right? Because, because what self-awareness is, is, is it's not a thing. Right, self-awareness isn't a thing. It's a, it's a, an experience of self that is an aspect of the mind, and the mind is that is a power of the soul, and mm -hmm. the soul is the rational form of the body. Right. So it, it by by separating body and mind into two substances, and then taking soul and focusing on one of its powers knowing mind and then focusing on one phenomena of mind self-awareness or consciousness we've we've whittled the we've whittled the conversation down to a phenomenological aspect of a power of one intrinsic metaphysical principle of an entire human being that's right and that's so right. we we by 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 this gradual dissolution we we find that we're unable to explain this mysterious thing that's going on, this mysterious, mysterious phenomenon, self-awareness or consciousness. Right. Yeah. Because that it's three steps removed from what you would need to explain an integrated human experience. Right. It, but it happened over, you know, three, 400 years. And so people, people lose the scope of this whittling away until we're left with this, this ephemeral, vague notion of of consciousness or, or sentience yeah it's almost like you're divorcing intelligence from the person who has an intellect right yeah. and you're all you're doing is you're focusing on the actual act of intelligence and actually that's actually a, a good way to understand functionalism because what functionalism okay. does is just basically says that what you have are are functional states this is what a mind is a mind is just a functional states that takes causal inputs and then turns around and gives organized outputs mm -hmm. and that if that's all that intelligence is again completely divorced from anthropology completely divorced right. from any understanding of what it is to be a human being what it is to have the power of intellect and will we're just looking at the activity of intelligence now mm -hmm. and we're trying to reduce that down to something physical and um functionalism just says um any system that can can get these causal inputs that's and then have right. these okay. behavioral outputs right and, and can interact with other states of mind that's a thinking thing we mm -hmm. have a thinking thing that's what intelligence is and if, yeah. if that's what you think intelligence is then again you can instantiate that that um function in in anything that's um sufficiently sophisticated it doesn't have to be made of carbon it doesn't right. have to be a brain it doesn't have to have neurons or have neural networks or what have you it just has to be a sufficiently sophisticated material thing network 
um, that has a certain kind of functional organization that can give that can take the same inputs and produce the same outputs, yeah. right? And what I'm describing here is a computer, right? Yeah. That's what that's what a computer does, and, right. and it makes sense from what you're saying because in a computer we kind of outsource what we we outsource our intelligence to a machine, right? That's what's mm -hmm. happening with the computer. We're outsourcing we're outsourcing functions of our intelligence to a machine, and it's just a functional. Um, artifact that we've right. created that you know takes certain causal inputs and then spits out certain reactions and behavior. Yeah. So, so yeah. I anyway, I just think that uh, the question of functionalism is so central right now, and uh, there's a lot of good arguments against it. By the way, it's not a very good theory. A lot mm -hmm. of people are abandoning it today. Um, actually, you know, the, one of the most popular theories now is panpsychism. Have you have you looked into panpsychism at all? Uh, only via Thomas Nagel's uh, Mind and Cosmos, which is about ten years out of date. Um, yeah. So um, I, I did some I did some research on Nagel's panpsychism, specifically his you know his 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 view of uh, uh, objective idealism via panpsychism. Um, but it's it's been a while. Yeah. So so there has been such a failure. Um, and I'm not speaking hyperbolic here. There has been such a failure to reduce um, the mental to the physical for the very reasons that we've already talked about here. Problem yeah. of consciousness, the, the, the problem of intentionality, the problem of rationality, abstract mm -hmm. reasoning that you were talking about. There, it's been such an ab abject failure that um, a lot of materials are just kind of stepping back and flipping the whole model upside down. So instead of starting at the ground level with inert... Um, non-intentional, non-conscious bits of matter and then kind of doing a construction project to, mm -hmm. to kind of get to whatever mentality is. A lot of philosophers now, panpsychism has become very popular, are instead inverting that and, and they're claiming that somehow, because we've totally failed to unpack consciousness from a, from a bottom-up working of, of you know, material constituents, they're saying what we need to do is throw that whole model out. And now we have to assume that the fundamental stuff of reality itself, this fundamental material stuff is itself conscious already in some way. Yeah. It's, so is seated with some sort of, it's seated with this sort of like proto consciousness or something. That's exactly like that. right. Yeah. yeah. That's because there's been this construction problem. How mm -hmm. do you go from, bits of, of matter, the fundamental constituents of reality that are themselves not conscious, how could mm -hmm. you ever build up to something that is conscious? It just seems like there's a massive construction problem there. So I'm just yeah. saying that to highlight the fact that it's not just you and I, you know, Aristotelian philosophers who also happen to be Christians that, you know, we have a dog in this fight. Um, but it's actually, um, it's a big issue right now in the philosophy of mind and, and this idea that we have to start with the right construction materials mm -hmm. to get to consciousness. That means we have to start with bits of matter that are themselves in some sense conscious. It just kind of gives you a forecast. It kind of gives you a picture of um, the, the uh, power of some of the objections that you and I, you and I have raised here. So yeah. um, anyway, I don't know if there's anything else you want to say in that regard, but um, I was thinking maybe we could move on to maybe unpack this idea of how do we understand human intelligence in more of a classical Aristotelian Thomistic way? Yeah, that that's exactly where I was. Uh, my my thoughts were going as well because I was um, in in looking at some of these uh, you know even MIT uh, guys who are questioning questioning the uh, 
what they call the hype of super intelligent AI, right? Um, and that is that AI is a, a, a it's an induction machine, right? Right. It, induction is is where you take, in this sense, you know, sometimes billions of instances of a uh, of an example of a thing. And so what what AI is really good at is this is the the rate at which it processes all of these instances and develops a and spits out like I said inputs outputs it, mm-hmm. it spits out these patterns some of these patterns look very uh, intelligent and so um uh what one of these uh, uh I think Eric Larson um says that what AI doesn't do is it doesn't uh, abduct right now I'm, That's I'm right. not, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the, you know, the, the sort of Freudian um, view of abduction. But what I what I think uh, what I think the notion of abduction gets at is it gets at the difference between uh, inductive pattern recognition, which is what's going on in AI, and um, and what humans do in their process of induction. Because uh, in um, in Peter Crave's uh, Socratic logic, he has a really good chart of showing this that that what what happens in human knowing that so i'm i'm getting to this what is actually going on in human knowing and uh what goes on in human knowing is um uh well let, let me try and package a few things together um because i i want to i want to also note what what the notion of the power of the mind is uh, mm-hmm. maybe i, I may, hopefully i can do this without getting too scattered but um <laughs> so this became clear to me in in teaching epistemology because in epistemology there's this internalism externalism debate. Mm-hmm. Is justification uh, is justification some sort of internal access to justifying reasons or evidence that something is true, a belief is true, or is it something that emerges from the context in which the belief is formed? Right. So, so you have something like a planting on one side and, and all the Cartesians on the other side. And, and the problem with the internalism, and, and, and same thing with a lot of these contemporary analytic uh, dichotomies, the problem is uh, each camp has a portion of the truth. Right. And w- what I realized uh, maybe about four or five years ago after, you know, teaching epistemology for, you know, 10 years, um, is that Aquinas actually accounts for this because somebody like an externalist, like a plantinga, is going to say, well, uh, you know, children, children certainly know things. Like my, you know, I've watched my my kids grow up and at a fairly young age, Apple they can distinguish an apple from a ball, from a giraffe, from a dog, right? But they don't they don't have a rich internal monologue going, well, the reason I know this is an apple and not a dog, right. is, you know, they don't have that. But they but they do seem to have knowledge. And if you say they don't have knowledge until the it, it just seems to make knowledge something you know, it's hard to account for, you know, you know, uh, uh you know, children knowing. Anyway, it becomes too restrictive, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, so what Aquinas says is that he, um, the proper object of human cognition is sensible being, right? So as we're growing up, we start to we start by knowing things. You know, everyone starts out as a realist. You know, you, it takes some pretty sophisticated philosophy <laughs> to get you out of that's right. Realism, you know, so everybody starts out as a realist. You know, you know, you pet the dog, you you know, you scare the cat, whatever. But you come, you you start to know things, and this is how the knowing process starts. Then, as as you get older and and your and your mind develops, you can start to reflect on knowing things. You can reflect on instances of knowing things, and this is where epistemology starts. It's not just knowing things; it's knowing how do we know things, right? Right. 
And then we discovered that we had these two distinct powers of knowing sensation and intellection. And then what Aquinas says is that as you reflect on the knowing process, you come to understand that there has to be a power of knowing. And that's the mind. That's right. Which is an aspect of the immaterial soul, right? So um, so that's how Aquinas, it, something that is purely immaterial is never empirically directly available, right? I can see my laptop in front of me, but I can't see my mind. What, what I'm aware of is I'm aware of the laptop. I'm aware of my knowing process about the laptop. And then to account for that knowing process, I I assume mind as the power by which the, the effect is produced. And the effect is my knowledge. Right. Because, uh, otherwise, you have knowledge popping into existence ex nihilo, mm-hmm. which doesn't have any sort of causal ground for it. So sort of blending the metaphysics and epistemology there. Okay, so so that's, that's sort of a brief... Um, uh, brief context of human knowing and process things, knowing itself and the power of knowing being the mind. Then we switch over to uh, the nature of induction. Uh, AI has this inductive process by which it, it becomes this pattern recognition machine, right? Or pattern producing machine. It produces patterns from a bunch of disparate instances, billions of instances processed very quickly. Humans don't do that. Or humans do something that else, and that is um, this goes back to Crafe's chart, is that from induction, uh, from induction in terms of instances, there is an inductive, um, there's an abstraction process, All right? We, we used triangles earlier. From multiple instances of geometric shapes, I, I, I abstract this, this universal notion of triangularity, which extends over every instance of triangles, right? right? And so uh, this is something that AI doesn't do. It doesn't have an abstraction process whereby it, it, it forms a universal. It doesn't form concepts. Exactly. And, and one, of my, one of my favorite instances of this, <laughs> no pun intended, is um, uh, Mark Lang. One thing I love about Thomism, just as a, as a plug for the system <laughs> that we use, um, when I first became a Christian, I immediately got interested in Christian apologetics. Because I'm like, I'm committing myself to the fact that Jesus is the incarnate son of God. He came and died for my sins. He wants me to be in heaven with them. He demands obedience and, and devotion and all these things and whatever. I'm like, I'm 19 years old. So I, I immediately started studying Christian apologetics. And my aim was to test this religious commitment, this, this personal devotion with arguments for God's existence, arguments against God's existence, the historicity of the biblical text, the, you know what I mean? So, so then as a philosopher, when I, as a Christian who studied philosophy and, and embraced Thomism, I've spent the last 15 or 20 years challenging my Thomistic principles in terms of philosophy of mind, philosophy of science, epistemology, you know, because I think if these principles are true, they should be able to withstand any sort of assault from any order, right? Metaphysics, whatever. Anyway, so um, I love reading people who are, are um, subject matter experts in this very narrow field because they will say things, they will come to conclusions. And I will say, yeah, that's right. But the reason that's right is because Aquinas is right. Right. And, and I had the same experience reading Mark Lang. Mark Lang is a philosopher of science. Last time I checked, he was at University of uh, uh, UNC Chapel Hill. And... Um, and he wrote a paper, paper some years ago called 
would direct realism and, and a lot of people think Aquinas' epistemology fits nicely within a, 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 a broadly understood direct realism. He says, would direct realism solve the classical problem of induction from David Hume? And he answers the question, yes, but he gives this history of science example where in the 1920s, they started um, in uh, uh, astronomers started studying what he called uh, stars with um, with uh, 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 variable luminosity. So these are stars that that sort of pulse. Now, I mean, they uh, so their their luminosity grows and diminishes, as opposed to just having a, a, a static. You know, they they go through they go through cycles of luminosity, right? And Mark Lang looks at this historical example of you know they they would see these stars sort of come onto their their uh, their sky maps and then disappear for a while and then come like are these supernova what what kind of you know phenomena is this because they uh, up to that point they didn't understand that stars some stars could have a variable have life cycles of their luminosity mm-hmm. and he says they only needed about thirty or forty examples of this phenomena to reason that there's a star that has a different kind of nature to it. Right. And and, and his right. question is, and now that we're, you know, a hundred years beyond that, we, we find out that that's exactly correct. But how did these early astronomers from just, you know, less than four dozen examples change their mind about the kinds of objects that populate our, our night sky, right? He said, it has to be that from a limited number of examples, we're able to understand that there's that the best explanation, there's the abduction there, that the best explanation is that there is some object objectively in the universe that consistently um, has these properties. Right. And he goes, but uh, but if there isn't something like abstraction or abduction, none of this reasoning would be sound, and yet it is. And so that's the kind of thing that that um, that at least Eric Larson is pointing out. In his and by the way, really quick, Nancy Cartwright, who is a philosopher of science, points yeah. out in multiple books that this is the way science works. Sometimes we think that in order for us to come to some scientific conclusion, we just need thousands and thousands of instances yeah. to make a valid deductive inference. But Cartwright um, carefully shows that so many of our theories, so many uh, of the things that we take to be scientific fact, have been um, concluded to from just a small handful of inductive inferences. So this yeah. is like what happens in science all the time. Yeah, yeah. At the at the end of his uh, AF Chalmers, who I think is uh, he's either Australian or New Zealand, uh, I don't, they're indistinguishable to me um, because I'm, a, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an ugly American. Um, at the very end of his uh, his sort of introductory primer, what is this thing called science? He talks about. Um, he talks about powers and dispositions of things. And he goes, probably the best description of this is this Aristotelian view of agent-patient relationships or the ability to act and be acted upon, right? He says, he says this model fits with physics and chemistry very nicely. And he says, uh, I don't know why more philosophers of science don't embrace this kind of Aristotelianism. And what he doesn't understand is that there's this there's this whole wide-ranging metaphysical commitment that start of form matter composition. That's right. And and form is and 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 form is uh, intelligible and immaterial. That's right. But 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 from this narrow from this narrow philosophy of science analysis, Chalmers is just like, yeah, I I, I think Aristotle is basically right when it comes to this. And Lang is like, yeah, I think some sort of direct realism explains it. 
And I'm thinking, yeah, you guys are right because Aristotelian Thomism is right. That's right. That's right. And so it's just a it's just a fun exercise, or at least it has been so far. Yeah. So I think I think in a second I would like to just kind of zoom in on um, what is an intellect from that mm-hmm. perspective, from Aristotelianism and Thomism. Um, but just to connect what you've been saying here to more of, of the contemporary conversation with mm-hmm. neuroscience and cognitive science and um, philosophy of mind, um, what you were relating there with the power of abstraction has been brought out in, on the contemporary scene, especially by a philosopher, my, a philosopher of mind named John Searle, very popular mm-hmm. until he was recently canceled, by the way. Um, <laughs> so I guess it's not good to refer to him anymore in our woke culture. But anyway... Oh, okay. He, he, uh, he points out the difference between syntax on the one hand and semantics on the other. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about syntax, um, the syntax of a language, right, and the semantics of a language, syntax, we're talking about the formal structure or the formal features of language, right? We're talking about the shape and position of letters, the rules of grammar. Right. And when, when we refer to semantics, we're not talking about anything formal or structural. We're actually mm-hmm. talking about the meaning of the words yeah. and sentences in a language. And there is a distinction between the two. They are not the same thing. Um, and what he points out is that what computers do, what any functional system does, the only thing that they can do is um, manipulate syntax, yeah. right? They, they can manipulate symbols. Computers are basically super sophisticated symbol manipulators. That's right. And he, and he gives this argument, famous argument called the Chinese room argument to right. show that no matter how sophisticated you are at manipulating um, symbols, right, which are physical things, no matter how good you get with, with uh, syntax manipulation, it will never, ever deliver any semantic material, right? Because meaning is something completely different. And only human beings have the ability to have uh, semantical knowledge. Only we yeah. can form concepts and we can look at some squiggles on a sheet and we can read it as a certain word that has a certain meaning behind it. And of course, you know, um, at the bottom of all of that is the ability to abstract, abstraction and to be able to form concepts and, and then to take those concepts and relate them to one another to make propositions or judgments and then take those judgments and relate them to one another and, and reason, right? Uh, follow rules of logic and make arguments. These are powers of an intellectual soul mm-hmm. that computers can't touch no matter how sophisticated a computer gets it can only ever deal in syntax it can That's only right. ever be a symbol manipulation machine yep. so anyway i just want to point that out because it it's a it's a contemporary restatement of uh, what you're saying about the power of the rational soul to be able to abstract and and what, what's going on in induction Basically. Yeah, and and this is uh, this again is George Zorkadakis, who's who's got a PhD in AI, and he says so. This is where I love um, sound philosophical reasoning, uh, sort of uh, paralleling what the uh, what the scientists themselves are saying. Um, he says this toward the end of his book. He says uh, this is an astounding insight that resonates perfectly with the findings of AI research. Although we can program a computer to process information and take autonomous actions. We cannot program it to under we we cannot program one to understand meaning. That's right. Computers will always and forever be uh, computers will be always and forever unable to comprehend the meaning of the words we use or which they use when communicating in natural language. So yeah, um, 
uh, computers will never will never understand. That's right. They'll only ever be able to manipulate symbols based on syntactical rules, by the way, which we have to encode for yeah. these computers to follow. But they'll never be able to to have to form concepts. And if you don't form concepts, and this is key. If you don't form concepts, if you can't abstract, then you can't understand. You do not have understanding because mm -hmm. um, the, the ability to form concepts is what grounds the power of understanding. Yeah. So um, anyway, uh, I think that's a good segue. Maybe we can spend uh, the last 20 minutes or so here just reflecting on the nature of human intelligence from the perspective of the classics. You know, Plato, especially Aristotle, and then the Aristotelian tradition through some of the medievals like Thomas Aquinas. So what is a better view, JT, of, of human intelligence? Yeah, so um, the, the intellect or the mind, like we said, is the, we don't see it directly. What we see is we see the powers of the mind. And so Aquinas will say that there are three acts of the mind. Right? So we're not looking at the mind directly. We're, we're seeing the effect of the mind, and we're saying this is the power that produces that effect. One of the, the first act of the mind, he saw, says, is, is called conceptualization or simple apprehension. It's, it's simple in that it deals with uh, concepts in a, in a, in a non-existential way. Right? So in the world, we have things that, are, that have essences or that have substantial forms, say. So, so somebody like... Uh, Frederick Wilhelmsen in his book, uh, Man's Knowledge of Reality, The Introduction to Thomistic Epistemology. He'll say this. What we have is, and, and this is, a, again, this is a, a, uh, a great grandchild of Descartes. And that is this idea that when we, we can talk about knowledge, um, talking about knowledge is already a mistake. What we have to talk about is human knowing. Because what I'll say is, you know, uh, frogs and humans and angels and God. There is no such thing as knowledge they all have in common. Right. Because a thing knows according to its mode of being. Animals know according to sensation. Humans know according to sensation and intellection. Angels only know through intellection, and God knows via his divine grasp was, you know, uh, of his own essence. Right. So so when we talk about knowledge, I was I was uh, way back when I was actually still on Facebook. I had an, an exchange with uh, with somebody about the nature of time. You know, I was giving this sort of this Aristotelian understanding of of time being a uh, whatever measure of and change. Then, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the response was, well, that's uh, that's the human experience of time. And I said, everything about philosophy is describing the human experience. That's of right. Life. That's you right. Know? Yeah. So we're not trying to give a um, some you know some explanation of time that's just. Uh, ob so objective, it's true for all things, regardless of their mode of being. No, we're we're trying to give uh, same thing is true of knowledge. So, so what is human knowing? And human knowing is a uh, is a power of uh, the mind is the power of the soul by which we understand. It has three acts according to Aquinas: simple apprehension, which is where we the 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 things in the world it enables us to grasp those essences as mental representations. And, uh, and so the other thing to note is that there's a notion of uh, uh, there's a notion of formal identity because we, often we think we think in terms of uh, mathematical identity, right? Um, that is, uh, your identity is numerically you're one and the same that you were, you know, just 15 minutes ago, right? 
So they th- people think in terms of numerical identity where we're talking about one and the same thing. But there's also such a thing as formal identity. Formal identity is when two, two distinct things have, have the same essence in common, and that's our humanity. So you're human and I'm human, and our humanity is identical, but not in a numerical way. Right. Then we'd be the same person, mm-hmm. but in a formal way. And it's because we're essentially the same, even though, uh, whatever, anyway. So that's that's simple apprehension, and then there's judgment. So judgment tracks with um, not the essence of a thing, but it's it's way of being. So when I say I have a uh, uh, a um, a gray cat, I'm predicating uh, uh, her name Sheba. Sheba is gray, right? I'm taking this individual, this cat, and I'm predicating grayness of it. And the is there in this the is. Um, Grammatically, latches on to the uh, the mental judgment. The cat is gray, mm-hmm. and it predicates grayness of the cat. That is, there's something unified in reality that my analysis has broken up into subject and predicate grammatically, and I'm affirming that of a thing in the world, which is an existential judgment. This this thing, the cat, is is existing uh, as gray colored right it's this one thing in the world but that that through judgment and analysis i break up into subject and predicate and i affirm it about the world and that act of judgment tracks with the being of the thing in the world and then finally we have the third act of mind which is reasoning and reasoning is just the way in which we use um uh, uh propositions to reason to a conclusion now i I've a- when i taught logic i aristotelian logic i asked my students this question on exam of these three three acts of the mind which is the most important conceptualization or simple apprehension judgment or reasoning and i would get a variety of answers some of them wrong but my opinion was this uh judgment is the most important act of the mind because it's the it's the act of the mind whereby something some mental product the judgment latches onto something in the world which is where truth resides Truth resides right. in, this, in this accord between because if I have a uh, if I have a black cat and I say this cat is gray, the reason that judgment is false is because there's a discord between the thing in the world and the judgment in the mind, right? And the reason I say judgment is most important is because when we reason, you know, classical, uh, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. Premise one is what? It's a judgment. All men are mortal. Premise two is a judgment. So your arguments are only as good as your judgments. That's that's exactly right. And our arguments can only be true if the judgment accords with the thing in the world. That's right. right. But but what we're doing in reasoning is we're using this tool of logic as a a means of um, uh, measuring or uh, securing the the valid inferences the between inference. those propositions. That's, that's right. right. Yeah. Propositions. So, um, so that's a that's a that's a. Brief and I would just point out. I would just point out that every act of the mind, um, you know, it presumes and assumes the first act of the mind, which is mm-hmm. understanding. If you can't have understanding, and again, if you can't abstract from the particular and form the uh, knowledge of a universal in your mind, if you can't have a concept, then you can't make judgments. Because what you just said, this cat is gray. Well, cat and gray 
are both universals. They're universals, those are both, that's right. Those are both concepts. Yep. And what we do when we reason is we take these judgments, which are made up of a subject and predicate, and, yep. and they're suffused with concepts and universals, and then we relate those together. So we just said a moment ago that um, machines can only ever deal in syntax, mm-hmm. right? never semantics and we said that semantics was the core of understanding because it relates to this idea of abstraction and Mm -hmm. conceptualization well if that's the case then there is no act of the human intellect that could ever be replicated in a computer because every act of the intellect um, relies on first one which is conceptual which is this act of uh, abstraction and uh, furthermore every act of the mind has this this aspect of intentionality about it. That's right. Concepts, That's right. concepts, Socrates is a man. Man is about something. Right. Socrates is a man. The judgment is about something. Socrates is mortal is about something. So conceptualization and judgment and reason all have this, this uh, property of intentionality about them because human thinking is at its core intentional. It, it, it's both intentional and it's linguistic which is why right. the, the semantics aspect is so important. And and maybe maybe we can close out on this. Mm-hmm. It's all of those things and it's fundamentally immaterial. That's right. right. Yeah. So so not only are do we have a problem here with the idea of artificial intelligence from the perspective of the powers of the mm-hmm. intellect which are um, just not reproducible in any kind of machine, but at the end of the day, intellect itself, intelligence is immaterial right according to uh, aristotle and aquinas now um it starts from the fact that what we are as human beings are matter form composites right there's a material aspect to us then there's um, a formal aspect to us and the two are united and obviously the material aspect provides the material side or the physical side of our being but then the formal side adds an immaterial aspect to our being, right? And that immaterial aspect for human beings is a is a rational soul, yeah. as you said. So in its very nature, rationality for the classical philosophers, especially Aristotle and then Aquinas, um, is fundamentally immaterial, right? And that means that understanding, that knowledge is fundamentally immaterial. And if it is fundamentally immaterial, then it can never, by definition, be replicated in any physical system. That's right. There, there's there's so much there's so much difficulty. Um, I, I think non I think non Christian philosophers that are are at a real disadvantage because they um, agree they're, they're very much have a limited explanatory scope. They they've hamstrung themselves because humans are we're this hybrid. We're we're not we're not animals. We're not angels. We're embodied souls. So we have these we have these uh, po- powers of knowledge and volition that transcend the the sensible and material, but we we also have things in common with animals because we are animals, but we're rational animals, and so uh, it's it's very easy for someone who uh, either can't accept, won't accept, or does or just simply doesn't accept a a broader uh, Christian uh, view. It's it's hard for them to uh, embrace this oddness or this uh this uniqueness of human experience being neither completely animal nor uh nor completely spiritual we, we're we're embodied spirits right yeah so- in in, in hylomorphism this aristotelian view 
it, it also provides a way to integrate the two, right? That's right. Because, because we don't have to fall back on some Cartesian dualism that says That's you right. have two distinct separate substances, substances and, then becomes, yeah. and then it becomes a mystery and, and how do they interact, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and then we have, you know, neuroscience, which is telling us, hang on, although we can't prove that the mind is reducible to some physical process, firing of neurons, what have you, we can show that there is correlation, right? There is a deep correlation between what happens in the physical brain and the immaterial mind. Like the yeah. two are like fitting together like hand and glove. They can't be reduced as we talked about already. There's not an identity between the two, but there is a deep correlation between the two. And it seems to me, as you were saying, um, we have resources as, as people coming from the classical tradition of philosophy to say, well, that makes perfect sense according mm -hmm. to this Aristotelian model where you have matter form composite and the two make one being, right? That's you right. don't have these, it's one substance. And this one substance has irreducible powers and properties that, um, you know, the parts don't have on their own. That's right. So, so we bring these resources to the table that are just forgotten today, but that, I, like you said, especially, and one of the things that I'm passionate about is trying to reintroduce um, theology to her handmaiden, right? Classical yeah. philosophy. Like I'm really passionate about that because this is just an example right here where we have the resources already. If you just look back in our history to understand what's happening today with modern neuroscience and all the correlations that are being shown between the mind and the brain, it just fits perfectly with this Aristotelian um, idea of matter and form. Yeah. My, my go-to example is that of a coin um, because yeah. Um, because you have heads and tails, right? But you don't have two coins. You don't have a heads coin and a tails coin. That's you right. have a single coin that is, has both heads and tails. And so uh, my, my, my usual phraseology is that, that uh, the embodied soul or the, the mind body, um, they are, they're distinct, but inseparable. Mm -hmm. and, and then you know, right. a, a Christian will say, well, well, what about this temporary disembodied state after death? And I go, yeah, that's, that's an artificial state of affairs. It's not natural. And the way we know that, and I had, I, I like having this conversation because it's like, fine, if you want to put it in the context of scripture, why is there a re-embodiment? Why is there a resurrection? From That's, the right. If, That's if, right. If humans are in a superior state when they're a disembodied soul, then why would we be re-embodied? It's because our, our natural union with the body is what's intended for our personage. Exactly. Exactly. And it's so easy for Christians today, theologians, to fall into some kind of crude Platonism. Right. Um, and again, good philosophy will save you from that. So yeah. anyway, JT, this has been awesome. Um, I know we've been all over the place. We've covered a lot of stuff, and there is a ton more that we could talk about, even just focusing on, on the Aristotelian Thomistic perspective on this. Um, but we are out of time, so I want to respect your time here today. But just again, thanks so much for joining me in this conversation. Uh, tons of fun. Um, before before we say goodbye here, um, where where can people go if they're interested in what you're doing? Or I know you have a YouTube channel. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where can people find out more about about what you're providing? Well, I've I've hesitated to to fully embrace the social media uh, aspect of life <laughs> just because I, I I'm 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 increasingly becoming a curmudgeon. But but I have recently started a YouTube channel. It's called a, a Considerate Life. Um, so if they, if they look that up, hopefully they'll, they'll find me. I'll put a link to um, that in the description here. Yeah. That's probably the easiest thing. Um, I don't, I don't really have any other social media outlets, uh, currently. So that's, uh, that's probably the best way. 
Okay, great. Well, again, JT, this has been tons of fun. Thanks so much for coming on and, and we'll have to do this again. Yeah, sounds good.